October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Avenus History Podcast, Episode 32, The Avenus Civil War, Part 2. Last time, we began talking about the 1888 General Conference session and how the Church was trying to deal with the growing controversies that we've been talking about in the past few episodes and how they tried to do this with a ministerial institute to be held a week before the General Conference session. The hope was that we could all just talk about our problems and then we'll just be friends, right? We also talked about how Butler's attitude toward Jones and Wagner was being warped, culminating in paranoia about a conspiracy being formed against him. Good times. So let's pick it up from there. The 1888 General Conference was held in Minneapolis, Minnesota for the first and what likely is the very last time. The closest an Adventist General Conference session has ever gotten to Minneapolis was one meeting in Milwaukee, which technically is still closer to Battle Creek than it is to Minneapolis. Otherwise, there's never been another General Conference session in a state that even borders Minnesota. Not that there's anything wrong with Minnesota, but it's just like the ex-girlfriend of the Adventist Church, you know? I mean, we're still friends on Facebook, but yeah, it's still weird. Well, the Ministerial Institute we talked about last time kicked off at last on October 10th in the basement of the Minneapolis Seventh-day Adventist Church. And let's just say the basement was the perfect venue. They were supposed to talk about a lot of things, but before long, A.T. Jones and Uriah Smith resumed their feud over the Ten Horns. Now, you'll remember that the Ten Horns issue centered in the Book of Daniel, and if you're really not into the theology... I know how ridiculous this is about to sound. But, in the seventh chapter of Daniel, there are these four beasts, and the fourth beast has these ten horns. And most Christians throughout history seem to have understood this fourth beast as the Roman Empire. And the ten horns, therefore, represent its disintegration into a bunch of little kingdoms, which became Western Europe. So, Daniel 7 goes like this. Persia beat Babylon, Greece beat Persia, Rome beat Greece. But Rome wasn't conquered in turn by another empire. It was basically eaten alive by a bunch of tribes, some of whom would go on to found modern European nations. The Franks became the French, the Anglo-Saxons moved to England, and so we've called it England, that kind of thing. Okay, because there were these ten horns, Jones and Smith alike were looking for ten specific tribes that inherited the Western Roman Empire. So Smith had his list, Jones had his list. Now, here's the funny part. They agreed on nine out of ten of the tribes. Nine out of ten. The only disagreement was that Uriah Smith preferred the Huns, I mean, Attila the Hun, who wouldn't prefer him, and Jones preferred the Alamani. That is literally all this argument is about. Literally, literally, literally. And like we said before... This really wasn't about the Ten Horns, per se. Smith chose to see Jones's views as an attack on the church's traditional teaching. So why would Smith even prepare for this debate? Why would he do his own research? That would be a tacit acknowledgement that Jones was right in principle. That whoever was right about the history was right also about the interpretation of the prophecy. The point to Smith 
is that Jones had the audacity to even try to change the historic interpretation. So that left Smith playing defense. He did what conservative people throughout history had done. He appealed to tradition and dug in. Smith told the delegates that since his view had been accepted for the past 40 years, maybe they should expect Jones's view to last 40 years before they even consider believing it. And that was ridiculous. No one had studied Smith's view for 40 years before believing it. No one had done that with any doctrine. So Jones was clearly better prepared than Smith. And Jones had all the impatient confidence of a young person, which made it that much more annoying to Smith. As George Knight described Jones, quote, he had done his homework, knew he was correct, and sought to drive his point home, end quote. We talk a lot about Butler and Smith's attitudes in this whole affair, but really neither side was perfect. The year before, Jones had told Smith, quite openly it seems, that he hadn't yet pointed out all his mistakes, only a part. Uriah said one thing, history said another, so I hope you don't mind, old chap, if I take history over your opinion. The same imperious wit of youth was present still in 1888. Jones got up to speak after Uriah Smith said that he hadn't had time to study. And this is what Jones said, quote, Elder Smith has told you that he does not know anything about this matter. I do, and I don't want you to blame me for what he does not know. End quote. But now Ellen White was present as a referee, and she did not approve. Quote, not so sharp, Brother Jones, not so sharp. End quote. So Jones had his moments, but still they paled in comparison to the attitude of the elders of the church. Smith Pull the page from Butler's 1886 playbook. Let's have a vote establishing once and for all the identity of these ten tribes that Daniel is talking about. And Uriah clearly thought he had the votes, and he probably did. And, like Butler, he figured a sledgehammer was just as good as a band-aid at healing wounds. Wagner blocked Smith by suggesting that we couldn't possibly vote on something we didn't understand. We definitely need to talk about this some more, and talk, and talk, and talk was the last thing Uriah Smith wanted. Uriah Smith didn't get his vote establishing his position, but he did get the last word. In the review's record of the Institute, the author informed his readers that some folks out there wanted to get rid of the Huns and add the Alamanni on our list of ten tribes. Now, Smith may or may not have written this for the record, but it was clearly in his spirit, so I'm going to pretend that he wrote it. He didn't name names, and he didn't have to. But I'm going to add the names to it, so that way it's clear what he's talking about. Smith wrote that Jones's position was advocated at great length at the meetings, meaning Jones talked and talked and talked. And then Smith played the victim card. Quote, as much was said on my side as the limited state of preparation would allow, end quote. Limited state of preparation? Are you kidding me, Uriah? You guys have been arguing about this for four years now. But yeah, you poor guy, you've barely had time to prepare. You had no idea what Jones was going to say. Anyway, 
Like I said, Smith got the last laugh because the review editorial ended with a wee bit of snark. Quote, In view of all that was said on both sides, the sentiment of the delegates appeared from unmistakable indications to be overwhelmingly on the side of the established principles of interpretation and the old view. Whether or not this will make any difference with those who are urging the new position remains to be seen. End quote. The delegate's support for the established principles was unmistakable and overwhelming. And psh, we'll see if that overwhelming support means anything to Jones and company. Now, maybe Uriah didn't get the vote of the delegates, but he wanted the Avenus world to know that he nevertheless had their support, and their support, not Jones's historical research, should be all that's required to settle this issue. And I'm not kidding you. The very next thing Smith writes is an account of a sermon that Ellen White gave on the love of God. Smith wrote that, quote, Most precious lessons were drawn of the great goodness of God to us and how we should receive his love and what he is willing to do for us. Hearts were melted by the sweet influence of the meeting, end quote. So here's how this went down. Paragraph 1. Everyone supported me on the ten horns, so take that, Jones. Paragraph 2. Boy, Ellen preached a wonderful sermon on how much God loves us and how we should love others. It really melts the heart. Does that add up to you? Yeah, me neither. But that's essentially how the 1888 General Conference went. And you bet it drove Ellen White crazy. The Minneapolis Seventh-day Adventist Church was the second biggest church in the denomination at the time. And that's part of the reason why it was chosen. Local newspapers were intrigued. The St. Paul Pioneer Press reported that the meetings were filled with, quote, the utmost harmony, end quote. And the local press never seemed to see the deep controversies of the conference, or if they did, they just didn't care. The St. Paul Daily Globe persisted in calling the whole thing a World's Conference of Seventh-day Adventists, not the General Conference. The same paper also said that there would be 300 delegates when the session opened with 84. For once, Adventists should be thankful that few outsiders were paying attention. Because when the conference began, whew, was it a doozy. And it's because Jones and Smith took up so much time arguing over the ten horns in the Ministerial Institute that the delegates decided to have more discussion time each day throughout the actual general conference session. So, yay! Wagner ultimately got to give about 12 lectures, most of them on righteousness by faith and the law in Galatians, of course, so it wasn't just Jones all day and all night. To deal with Wagner, J.H. Morrison, president of the Iowa Conference, represented Butler and Smith. Now, I should make it clear, because I don't think I did last time, that Butler never showed up at the general conference. His health was too poor, he said, in part for reasons we mentioned last time. But that doesn't mean his influence wasn't felt. Butler sent a steady stream of letters to his troops, like Morrison. Now, Morrison calmly told the delegates that of course he believed in righteousness by faith. Of course we're not saved by our works. But we must be careful of overstressing righteousness by faith, or else people might give up the Ten Commandments altogether. And we don't want that. 
So really, this whole thing was about where on the scale between faith and works we should be. Jones and Wagner were clearly closer to the faith side, and the traditionalists were closer to the work side. The two young preachers finally rose to reply to Morrison. They stood side by side with open Bibles, and they took turns reading 18 Bible passages, sometimes whole chapters. And then they sat down. No explanation was apparently needed. And that's when Robert Kilgore entered the fray. Kilgore was a 50-year-old army captain from the Civil War who cut his teeth in ministry with James White and George Butler. He was president of the Illinois Conference at the time, and you can probably guess whose side he was on. Kilgore said, quote, I would like to move that we stop this discussion of righteousness by faith until the president of the General Conference can be present. End quote. He would go on to tell the delegates that he thought it was a cowardly thing to talk about this topic when Butler couldn't be there to present his side. And I say that because everybody thought Butler was going to get better and show up, even though he never did. Well, Alan White was furious. Quote, Brethren, this is the Lord's work. Does the Lord want his work to wait for Elder Butler? The Lord wants his work to go forward and not wait for any man. End quote. The next day, she wrote, quote, Had Brother Kilgore been walking closely with God, he never would have walked onto the ground as he did yesterday. End quote. And she did more than write about Kilgore. She confronted him to his face. Quote, Elder Kilgore, I was grieved more than I can express to you when I heard you make that remark because I have lost confidence in you. Well, after someone accused her of being on Wagner's side, she said she wasn't yet ready to pick a side because she hadn't studied this issue out for herself. But she added ominously, By their fruits ye shall know them. Quote, if Elder Wagner's views were wrong, what business has anyone to get up and say what they did here yesterday? If we have the truth, it will stand. These truths that we have been handling for years, must Elder Butler come and tell us what they are? Now, do let us have common sense. End quote. Yet Ellen White did come to side with Wagner, even if she didn't agree with him 100%. As she listened to him present his case, she said it was the first clear teaching she had heard on the subject since the conversation she used to have with her husband, James. And that's a high compliment. But once again, the conservative forces were trying to play the victim card, because none of them were prepared to answer Wagner's points head on. Butler had always been the one who engaged with Wagner, and he wasn't here. And that's why Kilgore wanted the whole discussion tabled, and when Ellen White slammed that door shut, the conservatives were trapped. Now, the majority of the delegates there were conservatives, but they still felt impotent. They didn't have their champion. So they resorted to gossip and rumors and murmuring. Ellen White had no patience for that either. Quote, I am thoroughly disgusted and indignant for my Savior that those who profess to be Christians are babies. They are indignant if anyone does anything that does not suit them. And if anyone crosses their path, they are discouraged and want to give up. Well, let them give up, end quote. You know, honestly, there's just something deeply satisfying about a five-foot, two-inch woman calling a room full of male church leaders babies and then daring them to quit if they're going to be such wimps. I love it. 
Ellen White wanted to leave, but believed that God wanted her to stay and confront this attitude. She said, quote, Of one thing I am certain, as Christians you have no right to entertain feelings of enmity, of unkindness, and prejudice toward Dr. Wagner, who has presented his views in a plain, straightforward manner, as a Christian should. If he is in error, you should, in a calm, rational, Christ-like manner, seek to show him from the word of God where he is out of harmony with its teachings. If you cannot do this, you have no right as Christians to pick flaws, to criticize, to work in the dark, to prejudice minds with your objections. This is Satan's way of working. End quote. She wrote that she had spent hours praying in her room about this law and Galatians issue. But she concluded that whatever side was right, she would support it. But, she wrote, The spirit that was controlling our brethren was so unlike the spirit of Christ, it filled my soul with anguish. Quote. She called it the spirit of the Pharisees, and fighting that spirit was her mission. The spirit of the Pharisees led to cold criticism and the mocking of other delegates. Someone called Wagner Sister White's pet. It led to paranoia, like when Butler and Smith thought that Ellen White was a part of a conspiracy with Jones and Wagner to change the church. But Ellen White rose, day after day, during the month in Minneapolis, to lead everyone back to Jesus. To Ellen White, the issues over the horns or the law was never really the big issue. The unchristian spirit that motivated people, ah yes, that was the big issue. Ellen White had been kicked out of the Methodist church as a girl for believing that Jesus was coming soon. It was the spirit of persecution, whether mild or life-threatening, that Adventists had always detested. She wasn't alone in that story. And wasn't this how Jesus was treated? Wasn't this how the Protestant reformers were treated? Wasn't this how other early Adventists were treated? And it's like she was asking, is this who we're going to be now that we've grown up as a church? Are we just going to follow in these footsteps? This is what she said, quote, Shall the same spirit in any form be cherished among Seventh-day Adventists? The cooling of friendship, the withdrawal of confidence, the misrepresentation of motives, the endeavor to thwart and turn into ridicule those who honestly differ with them in their views. End quote. I mean, if you're really following Jesus, are we going to allow these little disagreements to break us, to cause us to spread rumors, to cause us to disassociate, to walk on the other side of the street as some people? She marveled how, quote, a difference in the application of some few scriptural passages makes men forget their religious principles, end quote. She wrote a very hard letter to Butler during the conference which could easily be read as a suggestion that he resign as General Conference President. She told him that different people have different skills, and they can only work as far as the ability God has given them. The church had grown faster than Butler's ability to govern it. She told Butler that he was issuing too many rules and regulations in the church, one of those resolutions, for instance, that the General Conference was considering was one that would have required teachers in its colleges to only teach what had been taught in years past. All new ideas had to go to the General Conference for approval before any teacher could teach them. 
Imagine. Willie wrote that, quote, Mother and I killed that resolution dead after a hard fight, end quote. Ellen White rolled her eyes and urged Butler to, quote, leave God a chance to do something for those who love him, end quote. She also told Butler that he was standing in the way of the church because he insisted that his will, quote, controlled in everything. This is something that plagues many young businesses. You could have a great idea and you could be a great manager of a small team, but many founders destroy their businesses because they don't know how to scale up into a bigger company. They don't know how to manage hundreds of thousands of employees. Anyone can ride a donkey. Riding a war horse takes a little more work. Ellen White was essentially calling Butler a donkey rider. I mean, that was my illustration, but I really think she should have used those exact words. Ellen admitted that Butler had done his best, certainly. He wasn't a terrible leader by any stretch. He just wasn't the hero the church needed, or maybe even deserved. Ellen White also took up the pulpit during the general conference. There are too many Christless sermons being preached, she said. Of all professed Christians, Seventh-day Adventists should be the foremost in uplifting Christ before the world. She went on, quote, We do not half know how to pray. We do not know how to get the victory. If only we would come to him and knew how to pray, our hearts would be melted and we would see the blessing of God and our hearts would become softened by the love of Christ. And when the love of Christ is there, why, then you can do anything. But it has been Satan's studied work to keep the love of Christ out of our hearts. But the trouble is, there is a great lot of ceremony and form. What we want is the love of Christ, to love God supremely and our neighbor as ourselves. When we have this, there will be a breaking down as with the walls of Jericho, before the children of Israel. But there is such an amount of selfishness and desire for supremacy in our ranks. Why, it is most painful. We see it everywhere. End quote. The surreal thing about this whole debate is that when you read the account of it in the review, it's almost like it's in a different universe. The review dutifully passed on all the reports from committees and the resolutions that were being considered, and mentioned how great the missionary work was going on overseas. Nothing about this feuding that was going on between the delegates. But it's not like it was a big secret either. And there were many, many positive decisions being made at this general conference. I don't want to portray it as if everyone was just fighting and they were at each other's throats all of the time. No, they made a lot of great decisions, especially concerning missionary work overseas and in the South. For instance, a missionary ship was finally approved that was being sent to the islands of the South Pacific. But overall, no amount of good decisions could fix the terrible attitude many had toward each other. The combative, competitive spirit led many to wonder if Ellen White herself could even be trusted. As we've said time and again, it's easy to believe in a prophet who agrees with you. Your belief in her is only really proven when she's against you. Well, in true form, Willie White summarized the 1888 General Conference as, quote, very interesting, <laughs> though, quote, not accompanied by all that peace and harmony that sometimes has been manifest. 
it is perhaps as profitable a meeting as ever was held, end quote. Now, Willie was the king of understatement, we've seen that before, but he wasn't breaking character with that last bit. He considered it the most profitable meeting they've ever had because through all of the debate, the call for Jesus to be central in everything the church did was seen bright and clear. Now, few understood it at the time. Delegates had to go home and lick their wounds first. But Butler's conservative power over the church had been broken, and really more by Ellen White than anything Jones or Wagner had specifically said. Ellen White recognized that the delegates, these pastors and administrators from across the world, would have to be reached individually. And that's the only way things would change. Ellen White called the 1888 General Conference, quote, the hardest and most incomprehensible tug of war we have ever had, end quote. But nevertheless, she too thought the meeting would result in great good. The immediate result, however, is that George Ida Butler was out as General Conference President. Just before the session closed, he resigned. Uriah Smith would follow him shortly. So, Ole Olson was in as the new president. Olson was born in Norway and thus became the first president of the church who was born in another country. Even though he had grown up in America, he was Butler's opposite in many respects. But the real problem with Olson was that he was in Europe when he was elected. So someone needed to sit in the chief's chair until Olson could arrive. Now at first the delegates chose Stephen Haskell. But Haskell took one look at the chair and said, no thanks, I'm not leading in this mess. So naturally, they had to choose somebody who couldn't say no to them. So naturally, they chose an introvert. Someone who was shocked to be asked and said that the thought of it made him sick. So they chose Willie White to be the next general conference president, well, at least until Olson could arrive. But hey, don't worry, Willie. I'm sure Olson will be here in no time, right? Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Avenus History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So... If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself. 
but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.